So Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So today what we're going to do is we're going to start our journey through Paul's letter to the Philippians. However, before we start this journey, what we, what we need to do is we need to set the historical context of really what's going on here. We need to look at the history. We need to talk about the birth story of this church because this letter that's being written here is a letter written by a great sufferer, by a person who's been through serious trials to a church that he loves dearly that's going through immense and harsh trials. Sometimes we come to God's Word and we think that these letters are written in a vacuum where people don't feel emotions or that they're just vague or cliche sayings. And, and if anything, this letter that, or, that we have here, Philippians, there's a lot of verses that are just fantastic that unfortunately get taken out of context and, and thrown onto coffee mugs and t-shirts. Not realizing that there was a man who was writing this book, this letter to a group of people dealing with some serious trials going on in their lives. And so what I want us to know while going through this, this book is that Paul doesn't really have an agenda here. This is a unique book that we're about to look at. And it's unique because Paul isn't writing, like he writes to the Romans, a missionary letter, asking the Roman church to partner with him in the gospel. He's not writing to the Corinthian church a letter of, of or he writes to the church of Corinthian a letter of rebuke. He writes to the church of Galatia a letter to call them back to the true gospel. He writes to Timothy talking about the qualifications of what it takes to lead a church. Here, Paul doesn't really have an overarching theme. What we're really seeing is the veil of this apostle's heart drawn back and seeing what animates him. This is a letter of gratitude to a church that has partnered with him from the very beginning of his ministry. This is, if I could say it like this, a letter written by a friend that loves his friend so much that he is writing to tell them, keep going. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep walking and fighting the good fight. This is a friend's love letter to another friend of encouragement. But like I said, one thing that I want to do first is look at this birth story. Because the birth story of this church that we have here is, is really unique. It's actually quite an incredible because as Paul and Silas and Timothy are on their trip, their missionary journey, Paul one night has this vision. He has a vision of a man to go to Macedonia. And in this vision, this man in Macedonia is crying out, Help! Help! We need help here, Paul! Come to us! And so immediately, Paul and Silas and Timothy start journeying towards Macedonia. And as they're 
walking and journeying to Macedonia, they happened to be journeying through a town called Philippi. It's a, a providence or, or a little part of Macedonia. And when they are journeying through this part, it was the Sabbath. Now, Paul and Silas and Timothy would have kept the Sabbath, and so there are two things that they would have done. One, they would have counted it as a day of rest, and two, they would have looked for a place of worship. But one thing we can know about the providence of Philippi is that this was a small place. This was so small that they could not find a synagogue to go and worship in. Now, in order, in Jewish custom, in ancient times, to have a synagogue, there had to be at least 12 or more men. But there is no synagogue here, and Paul, Silas, and Timothy find out that there's a prayer gathering going on by some women in the town. And so, they go. They go to this prayer, ta- prayer gathering that is happening just outside the city limits, And when they go, they meet this businesswoman, this merchant, Lydia. We're told in the passage that Lydia was a religious person. She was a worshiper of God, whatever that means. Probably means that she was the young school girl who had all the right answers in Sunday school and still had all of the right cliche things to say and throw at people when they needed to hear them. She was a worshiper of God. She wasn't a worshiper of Jesus. She was just a worshiper of God. And we know this because when Paul shows up, he preaches the gospel to them. And Lydia's heart is completely gripped with what she's hearing. And she repents. Remind you, Paul Silas and Timothy weren't going to go to Macedonia. They weren't going to travel through Philippi, and her heart, Lydia's heart, is gripped, and she repents, and Paul baptizes her on the spot. And it being the Sabbath, she invites them to her house so that way they can rest, and in the morning wake up and make their journey to then Macedonia. But something happens on their journey between this prayer meeting and Lydia's house. As Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and now Lydia are journeying or walking to her house, there's this demon-possessed girl whose owners were taking advantage of her. She was a fortune teller, and she was following these four people, crying out about Paul, Silas, and Timothy. These are servants of the Most High God. And she followed them and followed them and followed them. And it got to a point like when a child is constantly following their mother and saying, Mommy, 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 Mommy. And I'm sure that a lot of moms wish they could do this. Paul turns around and in the name of Jesus, casts out the demon. (laughs) And they keep on walking. That is until the owners find out what happened. They grab Paul and Silas, probably assuming that Timothy's too young to have done anything, and they drag Paul and Silas before the rulers, and they beat Paul and Silas. 
and they accuse Paul and Silas for proselytizing. They accuse Paul and Silas for not keeping the Roman law, which was love is love. If you don't share or proselytize to me, we won't proselytize to you. You have your religion, we have our religion, we have all of these gods. Caesar is Lord. And Paul and Silas did not keep that. And so they threw Paul and Silas in jail. (laughs) They were never supposed to go through Philippi. Can you imagine being a missionary? You go from one moment going to a prayer meeting, preaching the gospel, seeing somebody come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, baptizing them, and 15 minutes later being beaten up accused and thrown in prison because you casted a demon out of a poor little servant girl. Could you imagine what could possibly be going through Paul and Silas's head? Seriously, God? We just saw this. We just casted out a demon, and now we're in prison? And so now it's about midnight, and what do we see Paul and Silas doing? Do we see them complaining? Do we see them trying to escape? No. It's midnight, and Paul and Silas, we're told in Acts 16, are trying to sing as loud as they can hymns. Don't ever underestimate what a good hymn you could do singing it at the top of your lungs when you are in a dark, dark time. Because mid-song, what happens is the earth starts to shake, It starts to quake, and all of the jail cells swing wide open. When the jailer sees this, he pulls out his sword. Because if one prisoner would have escaped, that would have meant his execution. So it would have rather been better for him to kill himself than to be executed. It would have rather have been good to make it seem like one of the prisoners killed him than to be embarrassed and bring shame on his family. So he draws his sword and Paul shouts out, Don't do it! We're all here! All of us are still here! Nobody has tried to leave! And so the the jailer goes around and shuts everyone's doors to their cells and brings Paul and Silas with them to his house and he cleans their wounds. Paul preaches the gospel to them. And it says that his whole family was saved. His whole family believed. And then they were baptized. All right. Let's think about if we were sitting down across from a church planting coach during our day, in our period of time, do you think they would give you the wisdom of saying, you know what, if you really want to start a church, you want to plant a church, take the, the religious businesswoman and take the, the jailer and his family, and that's going to make a great combo This is who we have in our church directory here. This is who we have. 
We have a, a person with a background that has religious backgrounds, who's a worshiper of God to some degree, and we have a jailer and his, his family. This is, this is why this is so incredible, because this is so unexpected. But yet God continues to take the lame things, the most unexpected things in this world, and uses them for his glory. Paul, Silas, and Timothy weren't supposed to come through here. And yet we see this incredible church. Isn't this amazing? A, a God worshiper, a, a, a religious person, and somebody completely opposite from that, a jailer. Look, jailers during the first century were rough and tough people. You didn't mess with them. They had some serious authority under, them, uh, under their belts. And yet, this is who God uses to plant this church. This is who God uses and brings in front of Paul and Silas and Timothy when they're journeying through Philippi. And so, from the very beginning, from the very beginning, this small town, poor, small church says, we want to support you, Paul. That's exactly what they did. And so now... As Paul is writing this back to them, they're finding themselves in another unique situation where they're supporting the Apostle Paul again. But this time, out of concerning circumstances, this time, out of a very anxious heart of not knowing really what's happening with Paul. You see, if we can look at this letter in any type of way, this is how I would love for us to look at this letter, is that this letter is being written by a suffering man to a suffering group of people. And what does he want to do? He wants to thank them. He wants to encourage them. He wants to tell them, keep on fighting. He wants to let them in on the secret of remaining content in this life. Here's the problem with us Weak, fragile humans, though. The reason why this book is so important, the reason why we need this letter in our lives is because we just don't like to suffer. I, I don't think I've ever met one person here on this earth that has said, I just love to suffer. I love the anxious feeling. I love the depression. I love it when family members die. The reason why we don't like to suffer is because suffering, suffering shows us that we are not in control as much as we really like to think we are. This is why this book is so important to, to us. This is why in this letter, Paul is teaching his friends the secret to contentment. He is teaching them how to get through anything and all things that this life is going to throw at you. So, our message today is dealing with Paul's greeting to the Philippian church, verses 1 and 2. So how does Paul let us in on the secret to contentment with these first two verses? 
How does he show us the secret to contentment when he pens this letter, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that we need to understand with this letter is that this greeting that Paul is even saying is unique and different to how Paul introduces himself in other letters. The first difference that we're seeing here is Paul calls himself a servant. He calls him and Timothy servants, or if if we look at the original Greek word, it's doulos, you could also translate it as slave. So what Paul is saying right off the bat, which is completely different than any other letter that he has written, is Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, slaves of Christ Jesus. He doesn't introduce himself as the apostle that he normally does in other letters. He doesn't introduce himself, Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus. He introduces him and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. Not his apostolic position, but his servanthood to Jesus. And then what Paul does is he takes a very common saying, grace and peace. That would be the equivalent to our hi or hello or hey, what's up? And he adds this profound saying after it. Grace and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this would have gotten the attention of his readers. This was not something that was normal in their day. You normally would have just said grace and peace, and that was it. And this is how we normally see Paul starting his letters. Grace and peace. He would normally start Paul, an apostle. Grace and peace, or grace and peace. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Not Paul and Timothy, Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. And then grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So why does Paul start off his letter like this? He starts off his letter like this because he knows from the get-go he needs to draw their attention into encouraging words that have eternal life. He knows from the beginning that if I'm going to fill them in on the secret to a content life right away from the beginning. I have to be crystal clear with what it means and what it looks like to be content in all things. Paul is no fool of suffering. This letter is being written because the Philippian church had heard about Paul being in prison for some time. And so they sent one of their leaders, Epaphrodites, to go and bring him some food or clothes or oils. But something happened when Epaphrodites was on his way. He falls sick. He gets ill to the point of dying. But he pulls through, and as Paul and Epaphrodites are now 
talking, I'm sure of it, because we have the letter here that Epaphrodites is now telling Paul, this is what's going on. Brother Paul, they're anxious for you. They've heard that you've been beaten this many times. You've almost died this many times while being beaten. They've heard how you've been thrown into prison during your missionary journeys, how you were shipwrecked, and while being shipwrecked, you were even bitten by a poisonous snake. Paul, they've been hearing about all of these, these battles against the, the Jewish religious leaders that you've been having and how they've discouraged you. We've heard, Paul, how you've been locked up in prison under Nero's reign. We heard how they haven't even given you a release date. Can you imagine that, being thrown into prison and asking so when am I going to get out? And the judge throwing up his hands and being like, ah, I guess we'll see. This is Paul's circumstances that he's dealing with. He knows the, the fiery furnace of trials and suffering. And as Epaphrodites is now filling Paul in on what's going on in the church, Epaphrodites is telling him about things like the false teachers that are around them, the persecution that's coming in from the Roman government, their anxiousness for him as a brother in Christ, not knowing if he's going to live or die, the disunity of some of the members of this church that is taking place. And so Paul pens this letter. He pens this beautiful letter and he starts it out saying Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus how relieving how relieving would this have been for the Philippian church to read Paul calling himself a slave to Why would this have been relieving? Because Paul is making a statement. I'm not a slave to Rome. I'm not a slave to man. I'm not a slave to my sin. I and Timothy, we are slaves to Christ. There is nothing here on earth that has enslaved me. Yes, I may be shackled to Roman soldiers. There may be metal chains around my wrists and legs. But I am no slave to Rome, and I don't want you, church, to think anything else. I am a slave to Christ and Christ alone. So don't you worry. Paul here is declaring that in his suffering he is a slave to Christ. 
Paul is saying, in my suffering, my allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. Paul is reminding the church that no matter where we are and how bad it gets, we are servants of Christ. And we'll see why in verse 2. But there's something else that Paul here is declaring as he's calling himself a servant or a slave to Christ. What Paul is doing is he's putting himself and Timothy on the same playing field. He's not looking at his apostolic superiority and saying, look at how much better I am than Timothy because I have an apostolic authority. This is the Apostle Paul that we need to remind ourselves of. The one who just casted out a demon that we talked about. The, the one who was able to heal people. And what Paul is doing is he's putting himself on the same platform because we go and we read to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Paul is saying, look, we don't serve anyone or anything else other than Christ Jesus. All of us are on the same playing field here. It doesn't matter if you are an overseer or deacon in, in this church. It doesn't matter if there's apostolic authority that, that I have. We are all on the same playing field because we are all servants. We are all slaves of Christ. This is why this, this greeting Paul is, is calling um, on all the saints of Christ Jesus in the Philippi church to be to do, to be servants of Christ and nothing else. He's saying, overseers, don't leverage your authority. Deacons, you're no better. We're going to see later in this, this book, in chapter 2 and even chapter 3, Paul has all of the bragging rights if he really wanted them. And yet what he's doing in this first verse is he's snapping and calling their attention into focus by saying, look, we're all servants of Christ. We all walk the same path. We've got to be in this together. This is what he's doing. He's calling for unity, for fellowship among the believers. Christ followers are slaves. We're servants to Christ. We're not, we're not servants to any man here. Our allegiance isn't to community church. Our allegiance isn't to the Fox Valley. Our allegiance isn't to Wisconsin. It's not to the United States of America. Our allegiance is to Christ alone. We are slaves to Christ and nothing and to no one else. And the tragic reality is, is when we 
and shackle ourselves to things here on earth, we are willing to do anything to protect that. Anything. We are slaves to Christ. We don't count ourselves more highly than the person next to us. Look, let me, let me say it as clear as possible like this. There is, there's just no room in the church of Christ for arrogance. There's no room in the church of Christ for belief that I'm better or more worthy to be served than the next person. That can't happen. When that arrogance comes into a church that is a disobedient church to Christ. And so Paul starts off saying, look, we're all slaves, we're all servants. All of us, from the newest convert to me, the Apostle Paul, we're slaves to Christ. But what makes Paul's greeting of saying, I'm a slave to Christ, so important? Why is it him calling himself and Timothy so important? What makes this statement so weighty and worthy to add to his greeting to the Philippian church? We're told in verse 2, Grace and peace. Grace and peace. But not just this grace and peace of, hey, hi, how's it going? It's a grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. What beautiful harmony does grace and peace bring to a person's life? But what beautiful harmony does grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ bring us? Look, we look for grace and peace here on earth in so many different ways and fashions. We look for grace from other people, thinking they are the ones who will truly accept me for who I am. We look for grace from our parents or siblings, that they'll sympathize with us and tell us, yes, of course, that's okay to to be like that or do this. We look for grace from our world telling us what we want to hear. We look for peace in those secret fishing spots. We look for peace in our cars as we sit in them for five minutes before we go into a chaotic house of a bunch of screaming children. We look for peace as we're going for walks in the woods. 
But this type of grace and peace does not last. Because people are only so tolerant of other people. And the peace that we get from those momentary things change. This is why Paul adding from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is so incredible. Because what he is doing is he's drawing the Philippian church to the reality that the only grace and peace you will ever experience here in this lifetime and in the next can only be brought from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, all of us here, every single person in this room, if you're watching online, all of us are looking for grace. We're all looking for it. We're all in need of grace. This is why we look for it from parents or spouses or bosses or coaches or teachers. But what we really need is grace from God. Because this grace from God changes the very core of our lives. I don't know about you. I need this grace. I cannot live without this type of grace. Because it's the grace that forgives us of our sins. The grace that Paul is ultimately reminding the Philippians here is the saving grace from God's wrath. Look, they were like we were, the objects of God's heat-seeking missile of his wrath. But God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to people who come before him and confesses that they don't have it figured out. Look, you don't have it figured out, and you don't have to have it figured out in this lifetime. You'll never have life figured out. If you do, please write a book on it. I'll buy it. God gives grace to desperate, needy sinners who humble themselves and say, I'm a desperate sinner looking for grace. I've been looking for grace in all the wrong places. I've been looking for grace in people. I've been looking for grace in work. I've been looking for grace in children. I've been looking for grace in my hobbies, and yet they never bring me the grace that I'm looking for. Only the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, paying the penalty for my sin can ultimately bring me the grace that I'm looking for. So if you're looking for this grace, if you've been looking for grace in all of the wrong places, come, come right now. Come to the one who gives this grace and gives this grace abundantly. And if you're sitting here saying, there is not enough grace for God to give me, oh, let me tell you, there is more grace in God than sin in us. And so he gives us grace abundantly as a free gift. And the outcome of this is peace. 
peace. This was the outcome for the church in Philippi. And this could be your experience too. The experience of peace. Peace. You can have peace. But not, not some type of like peace that, yeah, I've got this nice vibe. Or I just hung out with a person who has this vibe and it just left me feeling peaceful. I, you know, I just, I just went to this babbling brook and there was nobody there and all I could hear was the water of the babbling brook and oh, it was just so peaceful. No, you can have peace with God because the babbling brook will dry up. But God's peace won't. God brings peace to this life because if we have peace, please listen, if we have peace with God, then what should we fear? Nakedness, famine, sword, death, sickness? No. None of those things. If we have peace with God and God is for us, then what in this life and the next could possibly be against us? You see, this is exactly why Paul starts his greeting this way. He's snapping this church's focus into place. Paul is reminding them of the gospel. He's helping them see the secret to contentment in life right away is that grace and peace with God is more important than anything in this life. So, I'm going to conclude this way for us. Let me help us prepare to go through this book. This is a book written by suffering man to suffering people. Paul has deep wounds. You're afraid of job loss? Paul gave up the best job that he could have possibly had. You deal with anxiety and depression? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that his anxiousness is so incredible for the church in Corinth. Paul tells us in first or in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that they despaired of life itself. You're afraid about what people are saying about you or saying to you. Paul gave up his closest friends to pursue the kingdom of God. If you're afraid of persecution and oppression from the government around us? Paul is writing to a people group who were literally... Okay, let's, let's talk about this, okay? The people, we don't face persecution here in America, okay? We just don't, even when people call us bad words. Come on. This, Paul is writing to a church when there's an emperor called Nero who was literally throwing Christians into the Colosseum so that other people could watch them be eaten alive. There was an emperor named Nero who was so sick that would take Christians, hang them from 
um, wooden stakes in his garden and light them on fire so that way when he had dinner parties, his guests had light to see. So let's not complain about persecution here in America until this happens, all right? But Paul knows the anxiety that comes from persecution. So we can take comfort from him into this. Paul is a man with deep wounds, writing to a church with deep wounds, writing to a church where the intensity and heat of trials and suffering is only being turned up and only will continue to be turned up even more. So he's going to teach them. And this is my prayer for us. Is that this is what he's going to teach us. is what a joyful life of contentment looks like. What a joyful life of contentment looks like. And so, let me just lay all of the cards down before you right now. What is the, sec what is the secret of contentment that we're going to be looking at? Paul actually shows us in these first two verses. Paul shows us. He shows us the secret to contentment. It's our fellowship with Christ and our fellowship with one another. That's what it is. That's what we're going to see. And look, I, I understand that there are some of you who haven't faced suffering yet. I, I understand that, that maybe there are some who are in here, who are saying, oh, that's not going to happen to me. But, but here's, here's the thing. A life, a Christian life, um, promises suffering. It does. And if you, if you haven't experienced it yet, you will. You will. Trust me. You'll experience suffering. And this is why this letter is so important. Because it lays the foundation of the secret to contentment in this life. And it's our union with Christ and our unity with other believers. That's the secret of contentment that Paul's going to show us here. That's the secret of contentment that I want us to see. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy to be praised. God, you be glorified. Would we take the words of the Apostle Paul serious here? Would we look at this book? Would we read it and reread it and reread it and by your Spirit be stirred? Be stirred to, to worship you more so that way when trials of various kinds come, we can count it all joy, all joy. So that way when trials come, we, like Paul, can say, I have grace and peace with God. Yes, there is anxiousness around me. Yes, there is sadness. Yes, there is the worry of what tomorrow brings. But if I have grace and peace with God, and I am His, then what else should I fear here on this earth? God, please, 
change us, cause us to be humble lovers of you. In Jesus' name I pray.